Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 639 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 6th of August 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Morgana Best about her new book, Stop Making Others Rich, How Authors Can Make Bank by Selling Direct, which is all about selling direct on Shopify. And Morgana helped me with my Shopify store, which you can find at creativepenbooks.com. And now she has an amazing book full of information if you want to build your store too. And she also has a course coming if that's how you prefer to learn. So if you enjoy this episode, check out episode 628 with Katie Cross, also on Selling Direct Through Shopify, and I will have my own solo episode with Lessons Learned coming later this week as an in-betweenisode. So the interview with Morgana is coming up in the interview section. So in publishing news, the Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster merger trial goes on as the US Department of Justice tries to stop the merger. Now this week, Stephen King testified as a witness for the government, saying that the merger of two of the country's largest publishers would make it harder for writers to earn a living, as reported by the New York Times. Stephen King, and this is my comment, Stephen King has to be one of the only authors in the world who could testify against two of the biggest publishers and still be guaranteed a publishing deal. (laughs) It was funny, I was thinking about it going, whoa, you know, really, there's a handful of authors who could do this and he is one of them. Mr. King said back into the New York Times, Mr. King said that when he started in the publishing business in the mid 1970s, there were hundreds of imprints and he shopped his work around without an agent. The number of publishers has since dwindled, he said, as competing businesses were subsumed or collapsed. With fewer imprints competing for business, advances have slowly dwindled, particularly for writers without a track record of sales. There comes a point, he said, if you're very, very, very fortunate that you can stop following your bank account and follow your heart. There are some really interesting things, nuggets in this uh, case. And I mean, for a start, I would say that we're almost back to where King was in the 70s, in that there are hundreds of small presses, thousands of small presses, and but they are all very small. So they're independent authors, they're independent publishers, they are tiny imprints. And I think there are many, many hundreds, many thousands of them now. It's just that the tradition they're not in the traditional publishing industry. <laughs> so I, yeah, I think this is... It's just, it's obviously a different business to the mid-70s. You, we can't go back. This is why I find this court case so puzzling. There are some other things that are puzzling about it. Vanity Fair also reported on it, which is interesting uh, in itself. But they say that CEO Jonathan Karp, 
fired off an email to his employees at Simon & Schuster, the nearly century-old publishing house that Carp has lorded over for the past two years. The fate of Simon & Schuster, whose catalogue stretches from the classics of Fitzgerald and Hemingway to the mass-market gold mines of Stephen King and Mary Higgins Clark, to the recent political blockbusters of Bob, Bob Woodward and Mary Trump, has hung in the balance since the publisher was put on the block in March 2020 by its parent company, now called Paramount Global, which arose from the tortured recombination of Viacom and CBS. So this is the point that I wonder if people are missing, is that Simon & Schuster is being sold by the bigger company, which is now Paramount, who basically don't want a publishing house. (laughs) So Vanity Fair says... A win for the government, so if the merger is stopped, a win for the government would not appear to bode well for Simon & Schuster. Penguin Random House is already a giant and will be fine either way. But Simon & Schuster is going to be sold. It is not, as they've put it, Paramount Global says it's not core to the strategy. So essentially, if a publishing house does not buy Simon & Schuster, then they've said perhaps it will end up in the hands of a private equity firm or some entity aside from the big five without the resources to pay the kind of advances advances that authors covet. So I think... This is really interesting. And and Jonathan Karp wrote in the memo, Simon & Schuster will be celebrating its 100th birthday in April 2024. In our history, we've changed ownership seven times and we know there will be an eighth. And he said, each time we have emerged stronger, which is a good thing for a CEO to say. But the point is, it is going to be sold. <laughs> so the question is to who? Uh, and it does, but it really does beg the question, do do um, uh, sort of employees of Simon & Schuster and the authors of Simon & Schuster, do we want them to be owned or do they want to be owned by a company that is not a publishing house? So interesting times indeed. Jane Friedman also discussed the trial in the Hot Sheet email newsletter, and she's been reading the case filings in more detail. And she said there's some very interesting things in here. The Department of Justice filing states that more than 85% of author contracts for anticipated top-selling books never earn out their advance, even several years after publication. So that's 85% of books basically never earn out their advance. Thus, the amount of the advance is all the more important because the vast majority of authors never receive royalties beyond the advance. And this is such a different model to the indie author route, where obviously we don't get an advance. We pay for editing and cover design. We don't have to pay for publishing. Remember, this is really important. But then um, we do have to generally pay for advertising. And then most of us get smaller amounts of income every month versus these bigger paydays occasionally. It's a completely different business model. Uh, And yeah, I mean, that's why there's such a disconnect, I think, between traditionally published authors who come into indie. They're like, but you earn so little money on each book. And it's like, well, no, technically, if you add up how all the little payments, like I get money every day from selling direct, then essentially, if you add that all up over time, and that over time is the important aspect, um, then it can add up to a lot more than what a bigger advance might have looked like originally. 
the other interesting thing is that, that Jane brings up is Simon and Schuster's current CEO, Jonathan Karp, testified that self-publishing is perhaps more of a threat than he previously thought, citing Brandon Sanderson's Kickstarter, the best performing campaign in Kickstarter's history, totaling almost $42 million. <laughs> Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting case and they're talking about some very interesting things. So even as indies, don't think this isn't about us or affecting us. We're book people. And I mean, we do, all of us. I mean, many authors listening are Simon Schuster authors, Penguin Random House authors, or people who would like a contract with them, (laughs) or people who are coming out of those contracts, or editors listening, or cover designers. So we are book people. I really believe that. And that is what I feel when I go to London Book Fair. Part of me feels this is not for me. This is not the place for me. They don't want me here because of being an indie. But equally, uh, I would and have taken deals where the contracts are good. But also, we care about books. We're readers. We love the publishing industry in general. So I want this to work out well for authors and the employees and everything. And yeah, so definitely, we we should be talking more about this. Then in futurist stuff, I wanted to bring this up. This is very, very interesting because only, what, last week (laughs) I talked to Roni Levy about NFTs and blockchain and copyright. And pretty much we were saying that it's going to be a long time before publishers adopt this. So I was absolutely thrilled this week to see reported in The Guardian, which is not the most technologically focused newspaper, that textbook publisher Pearson is planning to use NFTs in order to benefit from secondhand sales. And this is exactly the use case that I always talk about. CEO Andy Bird explained his plan to sell digital textbooks as NFTs, allowing the publisher to track ownership of a book even when it changes hands. Bloomberg reports. In the analogue world, a Pearson textbook was resold up to seven times and we would only participate in the first sale. And he said that technology like blockchain and NFTs allows us to participate in every sale of that particular item as it goes through its life. If Pearson's use of NFTs proves successful, this method of selling digital copies of books could become more commonplace amongst mainstream publishing houses. I am Seriously, I'm so thrilled about this because I've been kind of despairing that people didn't get it. So thrilled to see that Pearson do get it, which is digital ebooks in the current format. Essentially, you don't own it. So if you uh, download an ebook or an audiobook on one of the many retailers, you don't own that. Even if you buy it direct from me, you don't own it. You don't have the right to resell it. And if, if you did hack it and resell it, then I would see nothing. The original author sees nothing from that. And the publisher doesn't see anything either. But what it means if you actually sell an NFT ebook, which has a smart contract associated with it, and it has a an automatic percentage going back to the original creator. So I've obviously been talking about this for over a year now, nearly 18 months I've been banging on about this. And I'm just super thrilled because if publishers get it, it will mean that we can start to change the behaviour of digital buyers. And what it will mean is we'll be able to get more percentage of sale down the line. So yeah, I'm super thrilled. I really hope that this works out for Pearson. That is a brilliant use case. And this is the one I am so interested in. What I want is more streams of income, automatic streams of income from our books. That's what we want for the long term, basically. Super interesting. 
And of course, if you haven't listened to any of the blockchain or NFT episodes, then uh, you can find them all linked at thecreativepen.com forward slash future, where that uh, contains links to everything about blockchain, NFTs, AI, metaverse, etc. Oh, in fact, on the metaverse, the article also says that CEO Andy Bird is also exploring how other technologies could be used. He has a whole team working on the implications of the metaverse and what that could mean. Fascinating. Go Pearson. I never thought I would say that. (laughs) And while that might be futurist, we all have to continue selling books right now. And in useful stuff, Mark Dawson's Ads for Authors course opens this week, which includes Amazon ads, Facebook ads, BookBub ads, and much more. If you'd like to check it out and support the show, you can use my affiliate link, thecreativepen.com forward slash ads. So thecreativepen.com forward slash ads ads. Then that will take you through to the Ads for Authors course, which opens this week. So in my personal update, I am working on a short story in my arcane universe. It is an idea I had years ago when they started scanning the Vatican archives and has obviously turned into something quite different once I started writing, which tends to happen as a discovery writer. If you've been reading how to write a novel, you'll know that's how I roll. All part of the fun. And I'm intending to have that short story out before I start my pilgrimage. So that'll be out uh, in the next couple of weeks before the end of the first week of September. I also posted a full article on the blog this week with photos from my bookbinding project, which I've mentioned I finished a few weeks ago. Uh, I took a a print-on-demand original um, size. I did a new size, printed that with print-on-demand and then ripped the cover off and essentially did some ageing of paper and lovely frontispieces and used uh, end papers and did leather binding, all the trimming. So I'm really pleased with it as a creative hobby project pictures on the blog and a description of what I did and also pictures on Instagram at jfpenauthor or Facebook at jfpenauthor if you want to have a look at what happened but mainly actually we've had a bit of a holiday week Jonathan's been away in New Zealand he's just got back of course it's winter in New Zealand and it's lovely sunny here so we've been doing some walking and uh pootling around also watching some tv shows and i wanted to mention two we really like because it just puts our writing into perspective and the writing business into perspective two shows on netflix big timber which is about logging in canada far more interesting than you would possibly expect and rust to riches which is about gotham garage who make custom cars in the u.s now both of these shows i think we're fascinated with them because our both jonathan and i we work on laptops in an office in our home offices and uh working logging or building cars (laughs) it's completely different from our lives and it just in terms of the storytelling, Netflix's storytelling is remarkable. The character development, cliffhangers, they're very good at cliffhangers. But also it, it, the Timber show particularly is just incredible in terms of the investment that you need to make to make certain amounts of money in the timber business as an independent timber mill. 
I mean, completely different than us. But when I hear people say, oh, it's so expensive to become an author. No, it's not. You need uh, an editor. Really, I think you should spend money on an editor and a cover designer. These are the two things you really need if you want to be an independent author. Or, of course, you can pitch uh, traditional publishing. You don't have to pay anything. Uh, So you get to decide on your business model. But it's just fascinating to see what other businesses have to do. So, yeah. Now, Jonathan, and I have a new phrase, which is if we, if I'm going to the writing desk to do some words or some work, uh, he's going up to his office, we say, I'm going to get some logs. <laughs> because, you know, on the, when they go and get logs in the big timber show, it's a lot bigger deal. So yeah, I thought I'd share that with you uh, because they're both fascinating in terms of not just how different people uh, have businesses, really. So there you go. So as ever, thanks for your emails and tweets and comments and photos this week. Thank you to everyone who's been sending me photos of getting How to Write a Novel, the print edition. Uh, And of course, you'll always know if you have the direct version of the paperback because it has that colour front page. (laughs) But uh, as I've mentioned, the um, it will be out everywhere else in the next week or so. So if you want to buy from your usual store, you can do that in the next week. So yes, thanks for your emails. Uh, Royston Stone said on YouTube, I think this was, inspirational uh, Sasha Black, who was on earlier, well, last week. Sasha Black is a hurricane of fresh air and her energy pours through. And Susie Starbuck also said, wow, what a live wire Sasha is. As your typical reserved, quiet introvert, I found myself quite stupefied by her zany energy. Oh, and did you know you two have the same giggle? And I thought that was brilliant. Uh, so yes I'm glad Sasha's energy really can come through on audio I hope you get that Uh, and you definitely have to smile you can hear my smile right and also another tip if you're doing audio look at the mic so I'm looking at the mic right now and hopefully you should hear that it's more intimate (laughs) yes look at the mic as if you're looking at a person that is the plan oh and finally um Helen Hawkins said, if there are any writers struggling or in a bit of a dip, I recommend the podcast with Sasha Black. I'm ready to quit the day job and write. Just need to build up a safety net first. Brilliant. So remember, you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. Send me pictures of where you're listening or email me, Joanna at the creative pen, or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, because however you choose to publish and sell your books, you definitely need some help to make your book the best it can be. And I use Pro Writing Aid multiple times in my editing process, once after the full draft is finished, before I print it for hand edits, and then again before I send it to my editor. And if it's a short story, which I've got one coming up, I will just use it as my main editorial partner. I will also use it again before publishing as a final check. It is one of my absolutely must-use tools in my writing process. So why use software to help you? Why don't you just learn all the grammar and writing rules and apply them yourself? Well, we all use tools to improve our process and we are also often blind to our writing issues. It helps to have another pair of eyes, even if the eyes are software. 
ProWritingAid knows all the rules and helps you apply them. And of course, you can choose not to make the changes as you decide. It helps with making your writing more active, finding repeated words, finding words you could improve and change, sentence structure, grammar, punctuation issues, typos, spacing and more. It integrates with all the usual word processing tools. And importantly, for many of us, it integrates with Scrivener, which is how I use it. I open ProWritingAid and then open my Scrivener project and work through each chapter like that. I learn every time and there are loads of reports to help improve your writing in multiple ways. So won't an editor to do all this? Well, yes, they can, but I'd rather pay my editor to fix the things that the software can't. As brilliant as ProWritingAid is, it cannot read the manuscript as a whole and comment on bigger issues like character development or inconsistencies or plot holes. So I use ProWritingAid as my essential editing tool before working with a human editor. You can check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. That's prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in doing the show is sponsored by my patrons and also my emotional health is sponsored by my patrons. <laughs> and especially the uh, Futurist episodes, all supported by wonderful supporters on Patreon. Thank you to everyone supporting the show. And thanks to new patron. Tanya 76 this week and to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months you're brilliant and if you would like to support the show you get the extra monthly Q&A where I answer your questions in a private audio and you get access to the backlist so you get tons more audio and uh, I talk really about whatever you ask (laughs) within reason within reason indeed. You can support the show with just a few dollars or pounds or euros or whatever your currency is at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Morgana Best is the USA Today bestselling author of over 50 cozy mysteries. She has been selling direct from her website for many years and shares all her tips in her new book, Stop Making Others Rich, How Authors Can Make Bank Selling Direct. So welcome, Morgana. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Oh, no. And we've talked privately, so I'm excited to have you on the show. But let's take a sort of a step back. Why did you decide to start selling direct? And and when was that? Oh, gosh, it was in 1993. (laughs) (laughs) The beginning of the internet. (laughs) I was five years old at the time. (laughs) No, I lie. I wasn't. No, what happened? I was do, I was interviewed by a large Australian magazine and the journalist said, now you're going to be having publishers knock on your door, but I only had one, but it was Random House, so I thought I was so excited. And they solicited a popular book based on my doctorate, but unfortunately it didn't come off. It took months and months of backwards and forwards. I had to send them this, they had to send me that. And it was quite a stressful process. And in the end, it all fell through. So I was left with this manuscript and I thought, you know what, I'll just sell it direct. So this was like before the internet really hadn't taken off and so it was like in person. I went to Colin's bookstore and asked them if they'd take it and he said, we'll try five. So I got four friends to go and buy it. 
And he's like, oh, this is fantastic. And so they <laughs> got it nationally. <laughs> and so I, I got it selling there. And But, of course, I had a, a thousand copies offset run, which was fairly expensive because I didn't know what I was doing. And then fast forward, like almost 10 years later, I did another doctorate. But this was like on a bit of a apparently touchy subject. And I had an agent and someone, I had a smaller publishing house, but quite, a, which was headed by quite a famous person in the public eye type famous, not like an academic type famous that no one had heard of, approached me and tried to buy the rights to Privish the book. And for listeners who don't know what Privish is, it's basically where a publisher buys the rights to a book to shut it down because this was a rather sensitive book. So after that, I paid the agent off, got rid of the agent, and I did another print run and I sold this book. So now I had a few or two main separate nonfiction books that I had to sell direct. So that's actually what got me into selling direct. So by the time Kindle came around, I was already used to getting all the money and not giving anyone 30 to 70%. And I was used to having customers, not having retailers own customers. Back then, you couldn't even run ads to the retailers, but I already, I was so used to doing it myself and I knew all the benefits to doing it myself. And I wasn't too happy to hand over to the retailers when that happened, when Kindle happened in 2007. But of course I did it. <laughs> but I, I just knew the other side of the fence by then. Mm, yes. And I think that's important is that you've basically taken advantage of all the technology as it's come along, but you started yeah. back when it was super difficult. And I mean, I started, you you started before me, but when I started self-publishing, there was also no Kindle. And it's so funny because I feel like now people don't remember what it was like before, how easy it is now to get eBooks and everything and audiobooks when for a long time, it was sort of downloadable PDFs from websites yeah. and it was really hard. But yeah, so times have changed, but we're going to get into some of the technology. But I, I think before we get into that, let's talk about mindset, because I really do feel like that is the key. So how do authors need to change their mindset in order to sell direct and be successful selling direct? Well, I think authors have what I call the author mindset. I'm making air quotes here. Now, I'm always asked the same questions when authors approach me and say, how should I sell direct? And they always say, what will happen to my Amazon rank? How will I get people to buy from my store? What's the cheapest way I can sell direct? And then they're super embarrassed about making money. And that kind of has always shocked me because I thought authors liked making money. I mean, who doesn't like making money? But it's almost an embarrassment. And like you will hear people say, oh, I'm embarrassed about being filthy rich. Well, I always call it clean rich. But it's interesting that they're embarrassed about having dollars as the objective. Like I say, now what's your objective in having a store? Do you want to just be like one of the retailers with a little buy button or do you want to build a business? What's your objective? Is it money? And they go, oh, no, no, not money. No, no. And they almost wring their hands and almost say they want world peace, that the objective is world peace. They can't admit to wanting to make money, which is quite strange to me. 
because you've got to pay the mortgage or pay rent. You've got to feed yourself. You've got to feed your pets. You have to wear clothes or you'll be arrested. Like you need money to survive. So why not let, let's admit it. Now, selling direct for a start, you have to have a good relationship with money and admit that money is at least one of your objectives. And also that the cheapest way to sell might not be the way that brings the best profit. Like it's that old Latin saying, you need money to make money. I mean, obviously I've quoted it in English, but, yeah, that's an ancient, they knew that 2,000 years ago and it's still the way today. You have to invest in your business. But it's also not a get-rich-quick scheme. There are no shortcuts and you're going to have authors, whether selling direct or selling on the retailers, something's always going to cost you either time or money or both, but usually one or the other. But you can't get out of it either way. You'll have to fork out either time or money. And also I think with the business mindset, think of readers as customers and books as products. It's not a dirty word to have customers. Customers, you can still like your customers and they can still be readers. It's not mutually exclusive. But to think of things with a business mindset. Yeah, I love all that. It's so brilliant. You said they're clean rich. I like clean rich. Yeah, <laughs> isn't <it> good? <laughs> Rather than filthy rich. I like that. Or filthy in a good way. Filthy um, in a good way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, you talked about lots there. And I think you're exactly right. A good relationship with money, a business mindset, investing in order to, to grow and to sell. But wait, we've got to answer that question, which you brought up at first, which is the first question people ask you, which is what will happen to my Amazon? rank <laughs> if if I yeah. sell direct so do you want to answer that one yes if you're a wide author you're already used to not having a good Amazon rank because a borrow counts as a sale so like uh, it's quite funny a couple of years ago to test it I put my pen names new release and my wide book on Amazon on the same day and strangely they their ranking was almost identical and her book went to, I think it was 500, and mine was like 4,000. And they had the identical sales, like within five. Like, the yeah, it was strange. But that just shows you, like, as wide authors, you're not going to get that good Amazon ranking. But a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but some people on KU are already selling their backlist that's not in select direct. They're selling their paperbacks direct and they're selling their audio books direct. And I think they're the ones who are more concerned about rank. But that's a, that's the question. But that's a retailer type of thinking, not a business person type of thinking. But again, it depends on your objective. Does this author want to be, do they want to build up a business or do they simply want to have a buy button on their store? Now, there's no right or wrong, but it comes down to that. If they want to build up a business, who cares what happens to their Amazon ranking? It doesn't matter. And if they've only got a buy button on a store, they're not going to sell enough books to affect their Amazon ranking. So it becomes a moot point, really. Mm, yeah. And I think the more books you have, I mean, you've got tons of books, you write very fast and you, I mean, it, this is an important point. You can do different things with different 
author names. You can do different things with different formats. So as we record this, I'm doing my store only or how to write a novel. And it's not anywhere at all um, except my store. But then that store also has my backlist and some of the books that are in KU, like my mum's Sweet Romance as Penny Appleton. The paperbacks are there, but the eBooks are on KU. So I think this is an important point. If you go into KU or you sell on Amazon with eBooks, you can put different formats on right so you can mix and match depending on what you want it's not an all or nothing kind of thing absolutely and that's a very important point samantha price who writes i think amish romance is in ku she's been in ku for years and she has all her paperbacks and her large prints and her audio and her backlist that she's taken out of Select, she's got all those on her store. And without even advertising, because I think she's too busy churning out books and she hasn't had a chance, she's doing quite well out of that store. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So let's just, since we're talking about money, let's talk about the income and the cost, because you did mention there, it's the cheapest way to sell might not be the best way to make money, which I thought was a good way to put it. So let's talk about the costs first. What are the costs of selling direct? All righty. Well, first of all, I'll just quickly run through the costs of selling on the retailers. 30 to 70% of your income and they take your customers. And if you're doing Amazon ads, who benefits from that? Your ad, like I think I started counting the other day and I got to 38 and there were still books I hadn't counted and they were not the main book on the product page. So you run an Amazon ad, you're sending people there. Now, when you go to selling direct, again, it depends whether you want a buy button on your website or whether you want a Shopify store or maybe WooCommerce. So Shopify starts at $5 a month if you only want to sell on social media. It also, there's a $9 plan where you can put buy buttons on your store, but if you actually want a store, the lowest price is $29 US a month. Now, I was paying that for years. I'd been paying that on two websites each on two websites to have a website. So then I merged them with my Shopify store. And I think if someone goes to my Shopify store, they don't know it's a shop, they think it's a website. And you can do that with Shopify. So that's one way to save costs. Mm. (laughs) But for $29 a month, it doesn't take an established author long to cover that monthly. It really doesn't. And There are so many things you can do with Shopify that it's completely astounding what you can do with that. Like the big big brands have it. Tesla has a Shopify store. A couple of the Kardashians have Shopify stores. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For the Aussies out there, JB Hi-Fi is a Shopify store. Sephora, so many stores are Shopify stores, some of the biggest brands in the world. The Udi is a Shopify store. Do you have an Udi, Joanna? No, I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a lovely big wearable blanket. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, we're in a heat wave over here. But I think your point is that a Shopify store is just a website and a Woo- WooCommerce is a plugin for WordPress. I know many like Orna Ross, for example, uses WooCommerce and that it plugs into your existing website. Uh, I, because I have so many websites, I I now have creativepenbooks.com, which is my Shopify store. But because my website's so old, the creativepen.com, I decided to have another site. But what you've done is essentially, is it morganabest.com? Yes. And it's yes. a Shopify store that looks like a website. So I've merged it. I've got rid of all my website hosting and I just have a store. Mm, okay. So uh, any other costs? I mean, obviously, in terms of the b- setup of the products, the books? Well, it depends. You can add apps. Now, I've got Clavio app. I used to have something else and for years and years I resisted because I thought it's going to be so much work. You know, one more thing on my 50-mile-long to-do list that will only take a second, but there's millions of them. And I've also got reconvert. So, for example, what you can do with your store is just amazing. I get quite excited about this. Now, when you sell something, when someone buys something, they go to the thank you page. Now, that has a 100% open rate. So you can do things to like upsell on that page. Now, because books are typically low cost, high volume, it's good to have a high ticket item. So I've bunged, I've got a 16 book box set that I sell for goodness knows what, but I've got a 20% discount on that thank you page with a timer. And you can figure out who you show it to quite easily. I only show it to fiction customers because I'm sure people who are buying my book might not want cosy mysteries. And it has a five-minute countdown, but also on that page I can collect people's birthdays. So I can send them an offer or like a discount or a gift on their birthday. And you can also do so many amazing things that it pays back your investment very quickly like you can have an abandoned cart flow or automation, automation flow, same thing, different companies. You can have an abandoned checkout flow, a win-back flow for people who haven't bought from you in the past, however long you set, three months, six months, and you can have a browse abandonment flow. If someone has gone and looked at a certain product of yours and they've looked at it for a while but they haven't put it in their cart, So you can target all these people really easily and that more than pays back what you pay for the app. But also I would not suggest anyone take to my, don't suggest that anyone migrates their current customers across their current newsletter list. I would say keep them both separate. Yeah, absolutely. So we should say that we both use BookFunnel to deliver our eBooks and audiobooks and people will also need an email hosting service as you've mentioned but many authors will already be using services like that do you want to just talk about how you do print books print on demand books yes i use lulu direct now how that works i also use book vault which thanks very much you put me onto them and i'm very happy with them but before i get into that i'll explain that lulu direct and book vault are third party suppliers So I can sell print books or I do sell print books from my site without ever, I don't touch the book, I don't ship the book, 
I could go to the Bahamas for a month, not that I could because I'm too busy, but I could in theory, and my books would keep getting sent out. So it's a fantastic service. How it works, someone comes to my site and buys a print book, the money for the shipping and the money for the book both go into my account. Now, the print supplier then takes the money out of my account for the printing and shipping and they print and ship the book to the customer. They send The system sends them tracking. I don't do a thing. All I do is collect the money. Of course, I've had to upload the book in the first place. It's not a free lunch. But after I set it up, I don't do anything else. So what I'm doing at the moment, I've got my books in the UK being printed and shipped from Book Vault because their prices are incredibly reasonable. Lulu Direct's prices have gone up 20% recently. They also add a $1.50 fulfilment fee. Mm. But I I use them for the rest of the world because they have printers all over the world and the shipping is very reasonable and the quality is very high. Yeah, and I'm using Book Vault and they are shipping everywhere for me at the moment. And of course, it takes several weeks to some places. So I'm hoping in the more people who use bookvault.app and tell them that we need printers all over the world, the better. I've basically said to them, look, if we grow your business... (laughs) (laughs) Will you organize printing all over the world? And of course, we talked about this. Lulu don't do the five by eight sizing, which is why I went to Book Vault in the first place, because of all my backlist is a five by eight size. So I don't know why Lulu don't do that. They do a 5.5 by 8.5, but I didn't want to redo my backlist. But yeah, so those are the two main print on demand services, aren't they? Basically, Lulu and Book Vault. So I think that I mean, that covers quite a lot of the costs. So let's talk about how the money work, how the income works for getting paid, actually money in your bank account. Yes, that's great, isn't it? Well, with Shopify, you can set it to pay like daily, like every two days, weekly or monthly. They'll only pay on a business day. I've got it set to pay weekly, but if someone really needed money they could set it daily and they'd pay daily of course it could take if someone's paid with a credit card a customer has paid with a credit card depends on the credit card provider it could take up to 72 hours paypal of course it goes in instantly then you have to go to paypal and transfer it to your bank account and that could take a couple of days but you're not waiting for up to 60 days or 90 days like the retailers you're getting it that week Mm, yes, well, because I've been on PayPal for so long, my transfers are immediate. So when I did this uh-huh. launch, the money with PayPal goes in, as you say, immediately it's done. And then I can try, I try basically been transferring to my bank account at the end of every day because I don't like leaving money in PayPal for too long. I leave certain balance, but then I, I take lots. So, and then Shopify, I've got set up on daily for this launch period <laughs> at least. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Basically, the money is in my bank account and for this for this launch. And I've been super happy about that. I mean, it's like you said, oh, it might take 72 hours. But I mean, most of the money is taking 60 to 90 days. Or if people are traditionally published, it can take six months. It can take a lot longer, basically. So that, I think that that speed of money is is pretty exciting, I think. So talk also about the customer data. How are you using customer data in an ethical manner? to help the business 
yes, well, businesses have to abide by not just ethics but legalities, like there are so many legalities. Well, basically what I said before, I use it to target people. Like we, you can target, do amazing things with Facebook ads with a store. Facebook will integrate with several storefronts, but I use Shopify. So I use conversion ads, not traffic ads. And you can retarget people. Now, you can also do dynamic product ads. And that is, it's sort of like the same thing as an Amazon ad that's an automatic Amazon ad. This is an automatic thing that Facebook will do and they'll automatically serve that ad to the right people. Now, if Fred Blogs has gone and looked at, say, a box set and has sat there staring at it in your shop but hasn't bought it, then Facebook will show that, will serve that ad to Fred Blogs. But if Fred Blogs has already bought a different book, Facebook will know not to serve that ad to him because he's already bought that book. So it's amazing, like it's almost magical what it can do. And, oh, I must tell you, SMS marketing, I'm very excited about that. Now, SMS marketing has got much better open rates and conversion rates than email marketing. Hmm. And people are so used to it from online shopping. They're just used to it these days. And you can collect there are much stricter laws for that, like you must have a double opt-in and you can't have a pre-check box saying I give permission, which, of course, you can't with email marketing in some parts of the world. But with Selling Direct, you've got the option. Well, obviously, you wouldn't send them a long SMS newsletter, but you tell them of an offer or a deal or a new release, and it's quite exciting. So I use it for... Authors are used to the welcome flow. They're used to a welcome automation. And authors are used to lead magnets. But with e-commerce, you don't use lead magnets and obviously sign-ups in the back of your books. You use offers, like you could offer them 10% off. And once you've got them on your list, you can, again, do the abandoned cart flow, the abandoned checkout flow, the browse abandonment flow, the win back flow. So this is what Amazon does. This Amazon does upsells and cross-sells. And if you go to Amazon and you buy an ebook, the thank you page will say, would you like the audiobook with this? Well, you can now do that to basically anything that Amazon could do in a smaller way, of course, you can do with your store. So the I think I mentioned before the abandoned cart flow, if someone has put items in their cart but they haven't gone into the checkout and they've just taken off and left it there, you can send them a flow to say whatever you want to say to get them back. And also the good thing is with abandoned checkout, if they've actually got to the checkout and they've abandoned it, you can send them an email 15 minutes later or even in a shorter time and say, hey, I saw you abandoned your checkout. Would you like to come back? Now, the interesting thing with this is there's quite a lot of science behind this because all the big brands are using these things. And, like, if I wanted to buy, say, a pair of Louboutin shoes or something like that and I abandoned my checkout, I would need a lot longer than 15 minutes to decide whether I wanted that. Or maybe I wanted to buy 
like a retro fridge, a bright pink retro fridge that costs a few thousand dollars. I'm going to need longer than 15 minutes. But with ebooks, because they're quite low priced, the conventional wisdom is to send them that email 15 minutes later. And you can also split test. So I split test eight minutes later and 15 minutes later, and 15 minutes came out as the winner. And yeah, the win back flow. So if someone went to Amazon or any of the retailers and bought your books and then they stopped buying them six months ago or a year ago, you'd never know in a million years. But with this data, you can send them emails and win them back. So it's just amazing what you can do because you've got all that information there in front of you. Mm, yeah, and I've got to say that the, it is the power of the store, the power of Shopify is you can basically do anything that Amazon does. But on the other hand, Amazon is like a multi, multi-billion dollar business and it's just most for most people listening and for you and for me, it's just us. So what yeah. I found was that, oh my goodness, this really can do anything I want it to do, but oh my goodness, I don't have the time to do all of this. So I got a little bit overwhelmed. Like I spoke to you, we had a private call. I spoke to you and you were so helpful. And then I went and started trying to build my store and I just got overwhelmed. And I was like, do I just ditch this entirely? Or, you know, I felt very, yeah, just overwhelmed by how much I could possibly do. So what I did was I made a decision, which was minimum viable store. And I'll be talking about this on another episode that goes out either before or after this one, where I talk about this idea of minimum viable store, which is, I just wanted to get it up and running and do my launch. And then a lot of this stuff you can add on later. So I guess my question to you is, if people feel overwhelmed, what can they do to overcome that challenge? Because there are benefits, aren't there? Even if you build it slowly over time. The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. None of the big brands have started over. They haven't been overnight successes. It's taken them a long time. Everything needs to be built. And when you see all the exciting things you can do, the temptation is to do them right now. But just hold off. As long as you're doing something, don't aim for perfection, aim for progress. Even if it's uploading a book a day, uploading a book a week. And I wouldn't, and if someone decides to have a store, I would say rework your writing schedule. So if you're a rapid release type person, do something that gives you time. Otherwise, you will go quite mad because people who rapidly release are on the edge of madness anyway. So just do something to give yourself a bit of space or it won't be good. But no, it's you have to be kind to yourself and try not to be an overachiever. And any progress, no matter how tiny, is good progress and take your time. You don't have to have it done even in six months or a year as long as you're making progress. And I like to listen to a lot of the people who've built million-dollar brands from nothing or from less than $500, and they always say that. They say start out slow because if you go too quickly, you'll go down the wrong path and you need to start out slow and test everything. And often the people who are the most successful are the people who have gone about it in a very slow manner. 
Mm. You said you listen to people that I've been looking at the Shopify podcasts and things. Any podcasts you recommend? I absolutely love Davey Fogarty, who started, he's only, I think, 27, and he started seven brands and he's worth almost half a billion at the moment. He's an Aussie. He's the one who started the UDI. And I listen to him religiously day and night. I fall asleep listening to his channel. And is he a YouTuber or he's got a podcast? Yeah, he's a YouTuber, Davey Fogarty. Okay, I'm just on Spotify and I can see some of some of his episodes there. So that's really interesting. F- fantastic. I've been listening to a few of the Shopify shows and you're right. I mean, and it's easy to think it's similar to when you listen to a big name author and you think, oh my goodness. And then you see that they've been doing it for years and years. So it is just building it yeah. step, step at a time. And in fact, people can look at the Wayback Machine and look at what the Amazon website looked like in 1998 or whatever. <laughs> was absolutely appalling so I mean we all grow don't we over time and in fact this is one of the reasons I went with Shopify is because I can see a future where that is my main website but also that they change things I mean they're starting to do NFTs as beta they allow crypto payments I could do special editions I could do signed books like there's so many things we can do can't we we can do merchandise so I feel like if you get started with just like basic ebooks even and then just think about where you could be over time that's that's the way to do it absolutely I couldn't agree more and that's what I want to do I'm going to look at bringing in some sort of related product Mm. which I think is quite an exciting way to go but I'm very excited about Shopify and the NFTs and token gating as well um, which is as you know Joanna but in case someone doesn't know token gating is where you basically use an NFT as a token. So you could offer an NFT on Shopify and they don't need any crypto. They can pay for it in the normal standard Shopify way and you can have, they could say, you could offer them an NFT and a new release that no one else will get or a special edition book or something like that and Shopify is bringing that in as we speak, which is very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So I really see it as sort of bridging Web 2 and Web 3. And of course, you mentioned it has integration with social media. In fact, even this week, they announced integration with YouTube, which I think is brilliant. I've had a YouTube channel for like (laughs) since 2008. So I'm quite interested to do that integration. So yeah, and Twitter, I think doing an integration. So this is the thing, there are so many things we can do. But as we've said, start with the basics. I did want to ask you, I mean, you mentioned another one of the questions that people have to you is, how do I get traffic to my store? How do I do marketing? So you have mentioned paid ads, like say Facebook direct to Shopify. How else are you marketing? Influencer marketing. I'm very excited about that. That's something all the big brands do, but authors typically don't think of influencer marketing, which is quite exciting. Now, there are two ways you can do it. Well, I mean, there are probably hundreds of ways you could contact someone direct, but there's a website called Shoutcart where you can find the right person and the amount the payment they want is there on the screen and you just click it and pay. Or you could get the Shopify Dovetail app, but it's more a research tool and you can't directly connect with the influencer there. But also with Shopify, you can get 
a free Facebook store. You can have free shoppable pins on Pinterest. You can have Google Shopping for free. Uh, let me think, who have I forgotten? Instagram pins. You can do an Instagram shop for free. And Shopify has Link Pop, which isn't like the usual link that you see on Instagram. It's where you can put your store in and people can buy direct and they can buy direct on these social media sites rather than having to leave and go to your store. So if someone's starting out and they don't have a lot of money or money to invest in their business yet, there are so many things they can do for free, like going getting all these free stores on the socials. Yeah, and your book is full of so much. You are a wealth of information. You, What's lovely about this book is that as we record this, it's not quite out, but once this goes out, it's going to go. But I know how much you're still adding to it because it's like you're realising how much you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I had an earlier coffee and and it's brilliant. I mean, that influencer marketing chapter, I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So tell people where can they find your book and everything else you do online? Well, they can find my book on my store, morganabest.com. It's also on the retailers because retailers I'm not saying get rid of the retailers. That's a good way to pick up readers and get them into your store. If you have a series, put the second book, link the second, the next book in that series to your store. I have a Facebook group called Authors Selling Direct. That's brilliant. And I have the ebook. I'm also going to buy the paperback because it's it is like a Bible of information. So I highly recommend it. Stop making others rich. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Morgana. That was amazing. That was lovely to chat to you again. So I hope you found the interview with Morgana interesting and I love her empowered attitude of embracing every way to reach readers. And the long-term view is obviously important and personally, I keep thinking about where my store could be in five years' time or 10 years' time if I just keep adding to it slowly over that time. And of course, this is being really, really publishing very wide because we're not saying you need to give up on the other stores. This is just an an added bonus, an added income stream. So definitely check out Morgana's book. And also she has a course coming if you want to build your own store. Uh, So just go to morganabest.com. Coming up later this week, my personal episode on setting up my own Shopify store at creativepenbooks.com, including some tips for setup, why I chose, the methods I did, how the money works and more. Next Monday, it's back to Writing Craft with Becca Puglisi talking about writing conflict. In the meantime, happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time. <laughs>